The sermon text today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Uh, This is not typically a text uh, that pastors go to on Resurrection Sunday. I just like keeping you on your toes, to be quite honest with you. The idea of you coming here and knowing what to expect and getting what you expect bothers me, and so I like to go uh, to to places uh, that are a little bit unusual. But certainly Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41 is appropriate for what we traditionally call uh, Resurrection Sunday. It is here uh, that Peter, uh, who was the leader of the apostles of Christ, um, he preaches uh, the first evangelistic sermon ever to be preached uh, by a disciple of Christ after the resurrection. So here, chronologically, we need to understand that Jesus has lived, He has died, He went into the grave, He rose again, and indeed, a long time has passed, um, probably about 50 days uh, from uh, the time of His resurrection to the words that we read here in Acts chapter 2. But Peter is preaching to a group of people who need to hear the gospel, and he is compelling them to come to faith in Christ in light of the fact that Christ has risen Uh, from the grave. So let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's Word, and then we will move on into our consideration of this text. Acts 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, that is the other eleven apostles of Christ, lifted up his voice and addressed them, that is the crowd that had gathered about in Jerusalem. They were there to celebrate the Feast of Uh, the the Pentecost festival there. And he addressed them saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, these with me, are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only the morning time. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, speaking to the Jewish people there, you crucified him, he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, namely the Romans. God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, that is King David who lived long before the time of Christ. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter again implores his fellow Jews according to the flesh, saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. David, the king, was actually talking about the resurrection of Christ long ago, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In other words, David went into the grave, and that's all that we can say about him. He was obviously speaking of another to come after him, namely Jesus the Christ. He ascended into the heavens. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts two fourteen through 41 So far the reading of God's holy word, we do pray that God would bless the, the teaching of it as well. And so, friends, we have here recorded for us the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ by one of his apostles after his death, burial, and resurrection. Don't you think that's significant? Here we have recorded for us the first sermon ever preached after the resurrection of Christ. And it is not just any sermon, but it is a beautiful presentation of the gospel. Here is the gospel. Uh, Peter is proclaiming it, not just to any group, but to a particular group. These are Jewish people or God-fearers who are seeking the God of the Jews, who have come into Jerusalem to celebrate all of these various feasts. Passover had just taken place 50 days earlier, but other feasts too. So this city is filled with people who have some idea about the God of the Bible. They know their Old Testaments well, don't they? And they are waiting for the Messiah. And so when Peter stands up before them and begins to preach, he's preaching the gospel and is essentially saying to them, that Messiah that you all are waiting for, he has come. And we know he has come because of the works that he performed, specifically because of the fact that he died and rose from the dead. You can't say that about David, can you? You can't say that about Abraham, But you could say it about this Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. It's a very significant sermon. If you are a Christian and you want to know what a full presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ looks like, if you want to know how to proclaim it, if you want to know what elements are to be present when you tell somebody about Jesus, you do well to pay attention to what Peter said in this little evangelistic sermon preached on the day of Pentecost. The essential elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ are here. Indeed, you can go on in the book of Acts and you can find more examples of apostolic gospel preaching, but you'll find that though the words and the tactics change depending upon the situation that the apostle finds himself in, the essential elements of the gospel message remain the same. So it would be good for us as Christians to pay attention to what is said here. Here is the gospel. Peter preaches it with great clarity on that day. If you are not a Christian, 
you do not know what it means to have faith in Christ, or if you do not understand why you should, uh, then you would also do well to pay attention to this sermon, for Peter's objective in it was to move men and women, boys and girls, to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And so, do you want to have your sins forgiven? Uh, Then you should pay careful attention to what was said by the Apostle Peter Uh, long, long ago. I'd like to examine Peter's evangelistic sermon in three parts. First, I want to say a word about the setting so that you can understand the setting better. Next, I'll make some specific observations about the message that he preached itself. And then after that, I'll say a word about the call to repentance that Peter issued at the end of his sermon. Those three parts we'll consider one at a time. Uh, First, a word about the setting I want you to remember that Jesus had been crucified about 50 days prior to the events described here in Acts chapter 2. Remember that Christ rose from the grave on the third day after his crucifixion, which is the event that we are celebrating today here on what we traditionally call Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. After his resurrection, the scriptures tell us that Christ walked the earth for 40 days, proving himself alive, Acts 1.3, just a bit earlier in this same book. In Acts 1-3 we read, He presented Himself alive. Jesus presented Himself alive to His apostles after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what was Jesus doing in His resurrection except meeting with His disciples, proving that He indeed did rise from the grave so that they would move on from that event without a shadow of a doubt. And He was teaching them about what? He was teaching them all about The kingdom, the kingdom of God. John the Baptist came preaching at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was preaching the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Christ lived. He taught about the kingdom, didn't he? He went to the cross. He died. He rose again as king, king victorious of this kingdom. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules and he reigns even even now. After this, after this 40-day period of time, we're told that Christ ascended to the Father. Acts 1, 6 through 11 testifies to this event. So when his disciples had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will it come in fullness? Will it be here in fullness? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Uh, Lord, are, are you going to bring the kingdom in fullness now? It's none of your business, he says. Don't worry about it. But you're going to receive the Holy Spirit who will empower you to serve as my witnesses, not only here in Jerusalem, but also in Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. In other words, no, not now, but someday. But you have work to do. You have to proclaim the gospel of this kingdom until I come again. So the events described in in the text we are considering took place about 10 days after Christ ascended. It was on that day, the day of Pentecost, that the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the followers of Christ, just as Jesus had constantly been promising. 
You remember this. Jesus is constantly saying to them in one way or the other, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I I will leave you, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send you another helper. And here's what happened in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We read that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Incredible things are happening, aren't they? Do you notice that? This was a very unusual 50-day period of time. Christ was crucified but he rose. That's not something that happens every day, is it? It's a very unusual event. And he proved himself alive for a 40-day period of time, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father 40 days later. That's not something that happens all the time, is it? A very unusual event, a very significant one. And then about 10 days after that, 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ, there they are in Jerusalem And they have this Pentecost experience where tongues of fire uh, come and rest upon them, the sound of a mighty wind. They receive the Holy Spirit that Christ had been promising all along. A very unusual event, wouldn't you agree? Not one that we expect to happen over and over again, just as we do not expect the others to happen over and over again. God is doing something very significant in this period of time. We're told that these men, when they received the Spirit, began to speak in other tongues. What does this mean? What does it mean that the disciples of Christ began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance? What it means is that these disciples of Christ were given the supernatural ability by the Spirit to speak in other languages. The context makes it abundantly clear. I want you to look with me at verse 5 of chapter 2. Here is how the story goes from there. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Can you picture it? These are Jewish people, but they're coming in from all over the known world to celebrate, um, first of all, Passover and then the other festivals that flowed from it. And this sound, and at this sound, the multitude came together. So it wasn't just the disciples who heard the sound of the rushing wind, but others took notice of it as well, and it drew them in. They came in and they wondered what was going on. They came together and they were bewildered because when they came together, each one was hearing them speak in what? In his own language. They come together and here are these Galileans. And all of a sudden, they're proclaiming some sort of message but in a language that's familiar to these people who are coming together from all over the known world. And they were amazed and astonished. Why? And they were saying this, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that they're talking to us in our native tongue? That's how the text goes in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. They were accusing them of being uh, drunk. And so the disciples of Christ spoke in tongues, which means that they spoke in other languages, languages that were known somewhere in the world. They were proclaiming specifically the mighty works of God. We'll get to what that was in just a moment. They were proclaiming a particular message, but in the language of foreigners, a language they did not know before. Notice that there were two reactions to the proclamation of the disciples of Christ. 
Some, upon hearing about the mighty works of God that they proclaimed, said, what does this mean? They they were curious. What does this mean exactly? You're telling me this, and I want to know what the significance of it is. What does it mean? But others mocked the disciples, saying they must be drunk. I used to think that the accusation of drunkenness came as a response to the fact that the men spoke in tongues. You get what I'm saying? Here they are, speaking in tongues, The crowd hearing that goes, well, the only explanation is that they must be drunk. Um, They heard them speak in tongues, and so they reason they must be drunk. But that's the view I used to hold to. Now I see how ridiculous that view is. For how could drunkenness produce the ability to speak in a foreign language? I've never heard someone who is struggling in Spanish class say, you know, I think a six-pack would really help right about now. (laughs) You know, what that will do is bring clarity of mind and make me to excel in learning this new foreign language. Drunkenness does not produce the ability to speak clearly. Drunkenness does not produce the ability to deliver a coherent, clear message. Uh, Why then were they um, saying these must be drunk? It was because of the message they proclaimed. It was because of the fact that they were declaring the mighty works of God, and to some it sounded ridiculous. Really? You're telling me that this man was born of a virgin? You're telling me this man lived a sinless life? You're telling me this man raised people from the dead, gave sight to the blind, made the lame to walk? You're telling me that this man was crucified, and then, what are you saying? Rose from the dead on the third day, really? Um... You must be drunk. That's the only explanation. The things that you are saying are so incredible. I cannot believe it. I can only slander you in this way. Why then the charge of drunkenness? It was because of the message they proclaimed as they testified concerning Christ. They told of his life, death, and resurrection. They told of Christ in the native tongue of those who were present. Some said, what does this mean? What is the significance of the coming of this Christ and all that he has done? I want to know more. Others said, I'm done with these people. They must be filled with new wine. This is the setting. Peter, along with the rest of the apostles of Christ, had a captive audience on the day of Pentecost. Jews from all over the known world had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and Pentecost. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit um, resulted in the gift of tongues, and it certainly grabbed the attention of the multitude. It was this cap- to this captive audience that Peter, standing with the other 11 apostles, began to preach, right? Everyone's testifying, everyone's giving witness to these things, but Peter, as the leader of that apostolic band, stands up and he says, Listen to me, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Pay attention, this is so important. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only nine o'clock in the morning. Right. So here's the setting. But what about Peter's message? First of all, notice that Peter had to explain the Pentecost event itself. I mean, this was incredible. The sound of rushing wind, the the appearance of fire, uh, the the, the ability to speak in foreign languages all of a sudden by these Galileans. He had to explain it, and this is uh, something that you and I will never have to do in our proclamation of the gospel. We're never going to have to explain why tongues of fire descended upon us with the sound of rushing wind, enabling us to speak in tongues, because this was a redemptive, historically unique event. It was something connected with the ushering in of the, the kingdom 
and this new covenant era, it was a unique and unrepeatable event. It was the day upon which the promised Holy Spirit was poured out in fulfillment to the promises of Scripture. The fact that this event is unrepeatable really should not surprise us. Uh, Many of the events recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture will not be repeated. Should we expect God to descend upon Mount Sinai to give the Ten Commandments again? Has anybody ever thought that when reading through the book of Exodus, right? Or reading through Deuteronomy, going, here is history, and certainly every Christian should expect to have their own little Sinai experience for themselves. Do we expect that? No, we recognize that it was a significant event, redemptive historically. It's not to be uh, repeated. Um, Do we expect uh, to see Christ live, die, and rise again, again and again? We do not. We recognize it was something unique in the history of redemption, never to be repeated. It is not perpetual and never-ending. And so, to come to Pentecost and to say, well, we should expect to experience a perpetual and never-ending succession of personal Pentecost events is to uh, twist the Scriptures and to go beyond what is meant here. Uh, True, the book of Acts records for us instances of the Spirit being poured out upon Gentiles and Samaritans in a way similar to how the Spirit was given to the Jewish disciples of Christ here on the day of Pentecost. But those were also unique redemptive historical events which demonstrated that indeed the Spirit was being poured out upon all the peoples of the earth and not just the Jews, just as Christ said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And this is why we are told to go and make disciples of all nations. The Spirit, the finished work of Christ, is not just for the Jews, but for all the peoples of the earth. I want you to look and and see how Peter explained the Pentecost event. He appealed to the Old Testament to show that what had just happened was in fulfillment to the Scriptures. He said, but this, this event that you have just witnessed, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, who lived long ago. And this is what the prophet Joel said. And in these last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens and above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter put the events of Pentecost into their redemptive historical context by quoting from from Joel. It's as if he said, all that has happened today has happened because the time of which Joel prophesied has come. The last days of which Joel prophesied have come upon you. The Spirit was poured out in this unusual way to prove it, to prove the point. Having explained the historical significance of all that happened on the day of Pentecost, Peter then turned his attention uh, to uh, the others that had already been proclaiming in languages that were just moments ago foreign to them. Uh, Remember that the disciples were busy declaring what are called in 2.12 the mighty works of God. So can you picture it? The Spirit is given. They have the ability to speak in languages that they did not know before. And there they are busy proclaiming the mighty works of God in the language of foreigners. What are the mighty works of God of which they spoke? At first we're not told, but Peter's preaching makes it clear. 
for his message is all about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These were the mighty works of God of which the disciples spoke. In other words, the, meter, the message that Peter proclaimed was the same message that all of his fellow brothers were proclaiming personally in these foreign languages. Look at verse 22, where Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that the gospel preaching of the apostles and all those associated with the apostles was nothing less than a presentation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it was. What does it mean to preach the gospel? It means to tell people about Jesus, His life, His death, and His resurrection, and all of its significance for us today. What is its significance? That's what these men were busy doing. This is what Peter did. When we proclaim the gospel, we must tell people about Jesus' life. He was virgin-born. John the Baptist prepared the way for him. He proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand. He taught kingdom ethics, didn't he? He performed miracles, which were signs that validated his claims. That's what John calls them in his gospel time and time again. They were signs which validated the claims that he was making. He called disciples to himself. He taught them and then commissioned them to continue and then to build upon the work that he had accomplished. Peter summarized the life of Christ with these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Assumed here is some familiarity with the life of Christ, right? So popular was Jesus, so well known was Jesus that Peter could assume that his audience had heard something about him and the works that he performed. The life of Christ would have been familiar to his audience, so he spoke in this way. Secondly, we must see that when we proclaim the gospel, we must tell people about Jesus' death, not only about his life, but about his death. Peter summarized the story of Christ's death with these words, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I want you to notice that the death of Christ, indeed the whole life of Christ, was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, the, the cross of Christ, as we know from elsewhere in Scripture, was determined by God from before the creation of the world, wasn't it? Jesus did not live a random and haphazard life, but He came in fulfillment to the Scriptures. He came to live a life according to the plan of God. He went to the cross. He was not drugged to it, but He went willingly in order to fulfill the Father's purposes so that He might there make atonement for sin and provide a way of salvation. I want you to listen to how Peter wrote to Christians in the epistle that he wrote. We're hearing from Peter here in Acts 2 in his first sermon, but in 1 Peter 1, 18-21, listen to the way that he speaks. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile way inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He's speaking to Christians saying, you have been ransomed, you have been rescued, the price has been paid for you, not with silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, who like that of a lamb without blemish or spot was sacrificed for you. He was foreknown, he says, before the foundation of the world. 
God determined all of this before even creation, but was made manifest or appeared physically in the last times for the sake of you who through him are kept, who are believers in God. He raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so the death of Christ was determined by God in eternity past. Uh, Although that is true, those who crucified him were still guilty for the wrong that they did. Do you notice that? Peter here says that this was all according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but then he turns to the Jews and he says, You crucified him at the hands of lawless men. You used the Romans to do this deed. And so here we see that man is still responsible for his actions, even as he operates under the sovereignty of God in these things. Of course, we cannot say that to everyone that we preach the gospel to. That was something unique to Peter's audience. It was undoubtedly true that some in Peter's audience were indeed involved with the crucifixion of Christ. That's not so with those to whom we preach. But we must emphasize the death of Christ in our preaching, shouldn't we? It is popular today, I think, to talk all about Jesus' life. He was such a good person, wasn't he? And his teaching was so good. You know, he taught us how to love. That he did, I'm not denying it. But it's so common today to make the gospel only about the life of Christ. Let's follow his model. Let's follow his pattern. And to some, that's the gospel. There's no gospel there, friends. You understand there's no good news in that? Because in the moment you say, live like Jesus, you realize, I can't. In the moment you say, let's live according to his teaching, you you realize, I don't, right? There's no gospel in the life of Christ itself, except in seeing that Christ, through his life, fulfilled the law for us. We must get to the cross of Christ and show that he went to that cross in order to atone for our sins, to die for our sins, to shed his blood because of the fact that we cannot live up to his standards. We fail to keep the law in the way that he kept it. He kept the law for us, and then he atoned for sins. We must proclaim the death of Christ, and we also cannot stop there. Because if Jesus just died and then stayed dead, then he would have won no victory at all for us. But we know we must also tell people that Jesus rose from the dead. This is what Peter says in summary form. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ, what did he conquer? He conquered death. When he rose from the grave, was it not a demonstration of that fact that he conquered death? He could not be held by it. And when we look at him and his resurrection, we are also comforted that in Christ we have the hope of life eternal because Christ has conquered death. Christ rose from the grave in victory. He put death to death when he rose. He conquered the evil one. He earned eternal life not only for himself but for all who have faith in him. You cannot scratch and claw for eternal life for yourself, friends. You will not make it. You will come short. You cannot keep God's law. We have sinned. But Christ has kept God's law for us and He has atoned for our sins. We can have the assurance of life eternal if we are found in Him, trusting in Him, in His work that He has accomplished on our behalf. And we must also emphasize that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ all happened according to the Scriptures. That's really the beauty of this text, I think, and I can only say a few things about it because of time constraints. But I I want you to notice this, that Peter, 
when he preached that first evangelistic sermon. He's talking about the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. But throughout it, he's saying, just as it was written in ages past, just as it was written by the prophets. The prophets spoke of these things and Christ has done it. And so there he is urging his fellow Jews according to the flesh saying, you need to believe upon him, the Messiah, the Savior has come. He quoted from David, uh, from Psalm 16, 8 through 11, for David says concerning him, concerning the Christ, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So much can be said here. The main thing to notice is that Peter is reading the Psalms. Peter is reading what David had written a thousand years before, and he's saying, this is about Jesus Christ. It's not ultimately about David, because David died and stayed dead. His tomb is with us to this day, but Christ rose from the grave. And David's hope for life eternal, David's hope in the resurrection, was not in himself. He did not look to himself, but he looked to another yet to come, namely the Christ who would raise from the dead. That is why David himself had the hope of life eternal. The Old Testament text, Peter says, is concerning Jesus. Concerning Jesus. He then reasons that David, as great as he was, died and stayed dead. His tomb is with us to this day. But David was a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Do you see how Peter interprets that Psalm chapter 16 text? He says it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. We must be prepared then to show that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ all happened according to the Old Testament Scriptures. For me, brothers and sisters, this is what provides a rock-solid foundation for my faith. That Jesus did not just appear upon the scene someday and start a religious movement out of the blue, but rather we see that His life was in fulfillment to all that had been written for thousands of years beforehand, so that what we have in the pages of Holy Scripture is not just the record of some random man that happened to start a movement and say some good things, but rather what we have in the pages of Holy Scripture is a story from beginning to end of which Christ is the main character, the hero. His life, death, burial, and resurrection is the climax. It fits with all that went before. It fits with all that will come after. Christ Jesus is the crux of the matter. And the Holy Scriptures make it abundantly clear. Our church name is meant to be a perpetual reminder of this reality. I said a word about this on Good Friday too, forgetting that I would say a word about it today. So I apologize for the redundancy. But... It was on the road to Emmaus, a small village outside of Jerusalem, that our risen Lord met with two of His discouraged disciples to show them that this was necessary, the suffering, the death of Christ, the resurrection, was necessary. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and to enter His glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. What did Jesus do for His disciples that were discouraged by His death? Well, in his resurrection, he came alongside them and said, Look, all of this has happened according to the Scriptures. All that was written before was really concerning me. He demonstrated to that to them, and they rejoiced. 
These are the things we must do when we proclaim the gospel. We must tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, showing that all that happened to him happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and in fulfillment to the Old Testament scriptures. Do you get it? This is the gospel. Doesn't that, that, that task sound familiar to you? If you know your Bibles at all, you're probably sitting here scratching your heads going, wait a minute, isn't that exactly what the four gospels do? Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, each one of them from their own perspective. Don't they just do that very thing, tell all about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, showing that they happen in definite pl- according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and according to the scriptures that were written before. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Let us briefly consider one last thing before we conclude. Peter did not conclude with the story, but rather also pressed his audience to respond to it. We must do the same thing. We must tell the story of Christ, life, death, burial, and resurrection, in light of the scriptures. But it's also important that we urge people to respond to the story. It's a story that demands a response, isn't it? It's a story that has a call associated with it. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they came to Peter and the rest of the apostles and said, Brothers, what do we do in response to everything we've just heard? If this is true, if it's true that these indeed are the mighty deeds of God and you're not drunk, if if this is true that the Christ has come, what do we do now in response to it? And Peter said to them, here it is, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that you have just seen poured out upon the disciples here in a most miraculous way, you also will receive. For the promise, I think that is a reference to the promises of the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are afar off, even to the ends of the earth, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That's what the promises are for. What, what do you do? You need to repent. You need to believe upon Christ, trust in Him. You need to turn from your sins, trust in Christ, and be baptized as an outward demonstration of the fact that you have. That is what Peter urged. He urged repentance, that is to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. He urged uh, faith. Uh, Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. It will do you no good to turn from your sins but to not trust in Christ. Do you realize that? It will do you no good at all to say, you're right, the scriptures are true, I have sinned. That's the first step. But realizing that you have sinned, what must you then do? Look to Christ. Look to the solution for that sin. Look to the one who has shed his blood to pay the penalty for that sin. Look to him. You must look to Christ. And it will also do you no good to say that you have faith in Christ if you do not turn from your sin. Many do that, right? I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. And yet Christ looks to them and says, it'll do you no good uh, to, to call out to me and to say, Lord, Lord, if you do not also keep my commandments. You're not saved by the keeping of God's commandments. But if you have authentic faith, it is going to produce in you a way of life. True faith is always going to accompany repentance. And repentance is always going to accompany true faith if the, true, if the two are to be saving. And so Peter urged repentance... That is what he did. 
And for those who repent to be baptized according to the command of Christ, baptism being a sign of faith and repentance and of the covenant of grace that God enters into, the, to, into with, um, with all of those who believe upon Christ. Um, and so he concludes uh, with uh, this wonderful reminder that this promise, the promise of the gospel, is for all who call, God calls to himself. It is for you, it is for your children, it's for all who are far off, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. For this we give praise, we give praise to God. So what about you? That's the question. What about you? If you have faith in Christ already, if you've been baptized, I wonder, are you ready to tell people about Jesus? Are you ready to tell of His life, His death and resurrection, and why it matters? Are you ready to show them in some way how it's not just a random thing that he did, but it's in fulfillment to the Scriptures and according to the definite plan of God. Are you, are you able to, like Peter and the rest of the disciples there on the day of Pentecost, are you able to proclaim Christ and to serve as a witness uh, for him? I hope that you are, that you are able to give a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. And if you are not a Christian, if you do not have faith in Christ, I would urge you to, to search more. I would urge you to come and, and to repent and to be baptized. I would urge you to consider these things. I, I understand that it is a very difficult thing to sit down and to listen to a, I don't know how long this sermon has been, 45-minute um, presentation of these things and for everything to click. I think it clicked for Peter's original audience on the day of Pentecost. What, why do you think that might have been? That 3,000 just came and were baptized. Who were these people? They were Jews or God-fearers who were in Jerusalem, who knew the Old Testament Scriptures backwards and forwards. And so for them, when they heard that the Christ has come and His name is Jesus of Nazareth, they went, of course, I've been hearing about this Messiah all my life and I've been waiting for Him. And so it just made sense. We live in a day that uh, where, where Bible knowledge of any sort is, is rare, isn't it? And so I think we live in a day where we're going to have to walk with people very carefully to show um, what the Christian faith is from beginning to end. It's a unique task that we have as we live in this secular world far removed from the days of Christ. We need to be ready to do that. But if you are not a Christian and you're hearing these things and you're going, what does this all mean? What do I need to do? What is it all about? You need to seek that out. You need to come and talk to me or to one of the other elders at the church or anyone around you who knows Christ for that matter. Explain more to me about this Jesus. I would urge you to seek further. If you would like to pray even after the service with me and to begin that conversation now, I am willing. In fact, I'd like to offer this. The elders just last week approved this idea of offering a Bible study, a 12-week Bible study on a regular basis here at Emmaus Christian Fellowship, perhaps on a Sunday evening or something like that, that just seeks to uh, articulate the basics of the Christian faith. We're going to call it an introduction to a Christian faith. You're invited to that. All of you are. And I would urge you, members of Emmaus, think about people in your life who might benefit from something like that and who might be willing to come with you uh, and and walk through this 12-week study on the introduction to the Christian faith. Maybe you're here right now and you think, that would be great for me. I'd love to have uh, those foundations laid. You're invited to that. Come and talk to me and let me know that you're interested so we can begin to plan a time uh, to start that. I think that's the kind of thing that's needed in our day. Uh, We need to talk about these things more broadly and more fundamentally so that we might build uh, from there. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. In that we rejoice. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? 
Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you that we have recorded for us this wonderful example of gospel preaching by the Apostle Peter. May we mimic him as Christians. May we be eager to tell of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection, and how they pertain to the rest of scripture, Lord. Help us in this. Give us opportunity uh, to do this very thing. We do pray that indeed many would come to faith in Christ. And I pray for those who do not know Christ. Uh, that you would call them by your spirit and by your word. I pray that they would see uh, their need for a Savior because of their sin. I pray that they would look to Christ and see him as that Savior and that they would place all of their hope and faith in them and be obedient in the waters of baptism. Lord, do this for your glory, we pray. Also do it for our good. We long to see, Lord, more and more come to faith in Christ. Strengthen us now, we pray. Help us to be faithful servants of yours. And we say this all in Jesus' name. Amen.